Beginning on May 7th of 1993, the West Memphis Police Department began spreading out and going door-to-door around the neighborhood where the boys were killed. Inspector Gary Gitchell created an 11-question questionnaire for officers to use while canvassing the neighborhood. The questions on the questionnaire read as follows. Number one, ask name, address, place of employment, telephone number for home and work. Number two, ask how long they have lived there. Number three, ask who all lives in their home and what their relationship is and where they work. Question number four, ask how many kids they have, where they attend school, and the names and addresses of their friends. Question number five, ask the type of vehicles they own and get complete description, including color, year, make, model, and tag numbers. Number six, ask name and addresses of visitors they have had before, during, or after this incident. Number seven, ask about anyone normally seen in the area that hasn't been seen since the incident. Number eight, ask about anyone that lives in the area that appears strange or has been acting strange. Number nine, ask were they at home on Wednesday evening. Number 10, ask if they or anyone they know in the area is a Vietnam veteran. And number 11, ask if anyone in the area wears a uniform, any kind of uniform. And the last note on the page reads as follows. Underlined, make sure that all this information is written down with two exclamation points. The door-to-door canvassing completed by the West Memphis Police Department resulted in a 140-page handwritten document. Most people who have followed this case for years and years have never seen this document. It hasn't been posted publicly on the Callahan website, so unless someone has been to the evidence room in the West Memphis Police Department or knows someone who has, most of this information will be new. Luckily, a couple of our listeners have contacted me and had access to these documents, and they're posted on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. So feel free to go to the website and follow along with the document as we move through today's episode. As you're reading through the notes, you'll notice that there are page numbers written at the top, and we do have a few pages that are missing. You'll also notice that a few of the pages are cut off, and that's because the individual who went to the evidence room to obtain these copies, rather than scanning them, took photos of the pages and did miss a little bit of them. I have a trip scheduled in the near future to go down and take actual scans of the entire file. But for now, this is what we have to work with. As I mentioned, this document is 140 pages long. West Memphis PD sent several officers over a course of several days to knock on as many doors as possible. Now, what you'll notice from the addresses on the notes, it appears that the only area they canvassed was from Barton Avenue north and from 18th Street west. So that would be the northwest corner of the neighborhood. There are no notes that exist anywhere that I am aware of to indicate that they canvassed anywhere else in this neighborhood, including the south end of the neighborhood where Stevie Branch, Pam Hobbs, Terry Hobbs, and Amanda Hobbs lived. Given the length and depth of this document, we're going to break down our analysis of these notes into two episodes. In today's episode, we're going to go through the entire 140 pages, and we're going to highlight all of the leads that came out of the canvassing. Then next week, we'll go back through the document again and address all the sightings of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. 
Now let's move on to breaking down all of the leads in this 140-page handwritten document. Our first lead comes on the second page at the home of Otto Bailey Jr. And we've heard Otto Bailey's name before. His son Alan was one of the people who saw the boys shortly before they disappeared. While answering the questionnaire, Otto gave the following answer to question number seven, which is, have you seen anyone normally in the area that hasn't been around since the incident? He responds, there's a heavy set, 18 to 20 year old, blonde haired man who rode a bike, older with a basket, seen at 1100 WeCat cutting grass. As I move through this document, we're going to come across a lot of leads like this. Vague sightings of unnamed people. For most of these sightings, there was never any documented follow-up by police. When that's the case, we're going to just move on to the next lead. When we do come across leads that were followed up on, we'll break those down in detail. Now on to our next lead. On the next page, we have a lead come in from 708 North 14th Street. This is just north of Michael Moore and Christopher Byers' house. A Jimmy, and the last name appears to be Elroar, says Chris was there early. Michael was muddy. About one week ago, a white female was in the area looking at children driving a big brown Chevy. At 800 North 14th Street, a Mr. Joe Carey says he had seen a 1988 maroon Buick in the area. This is something to take note of, as it's not the last time we're going to have a report of a maroon vehicle. On page 4, we come across our first substantial lead. While visiting 1207 East Barton Street, a Miss Bonnie Bevel tells the officer that she wants him to talk to her daughter who lives on Roy Pugh Drive. Roy Pugh Drive is about 100 yards from the crime scene, just a couple streets down from the dead end at the end of Macaulay. The officer says that the daughter called him to come talk to her at her house. On this page, we find a few different leads. One of them is a Mr. James Thornton. The note says James is 15 years old and has played several times with the older buyer's boy. Once he went into Robin Hood Hills and there was a Star of David crudely made out of the legs of a child's swing set. A sign next to the star was something like, quote, leave now or you won't get out or something similar to that. It doesn't appear that this lead was ever followed up on as we don't have any notes or interviews with the Mr. James Thornton. But there's another lead contained on this page. And that lead... The respondent to this questionnaire points the police in the direction of the Wren Boys. The note reads as follows. The Wren Boys have dropped out of sight the last couple of days. A boy and girl have been in the neighborhood looking for the Wren Boys. This boy has a tattoo on his left forearm of a devil with a hood on, and he has scratches on his chest. Wren's younger brother, Frankie Knight, left school after lunch and was out of school the rest of the week. Albert Wren has been drunk and boys were going to take him to Robin Hood. Also, it's noted that at 1000 Roy Pugh, they have a friend with a devil tattoo. So who are these Wren boys? The first of the two is Michael Wren, and he can be ruled out immediately because he was in prison at the time of the murders. But the second brother was David Wren, on the 13th of May, he was brought into the police station for questioning. Detective Bill Durham wrote a note that says David passed a polygraph, and he also gave hair samples, head and pubic, and conducted an interview with Lieutenant Sudbury. 
the bottom of the note, it says body and private area given visual inspection by Dabs in Durham. We also find a note from Detective Brian Ridge that reads as follows. David Wren came to the West Memphis Police Department to answer questions about his whereabouts and knowledge pertaining to the above noted investigation. David explained where he was and any knowledge he had concerning the incident and gave a full account of who he was with. David was given a polygraph in which the polygraph examiner gave an opinion that David was being truthful in his answers. I also talked to Beverly Houston who verified that David was with her and family during the time when the homicide occurred. David Wren was ruled out as a suspect, but I did find one more note in the Wren file. It's a random note that reads as follows. Document number 00586 is a confidential document and can be found with the confidential files. Underneath it, in parentheses, it says confidential informant information. As we move on to page number five, we see that the officers start canvassing the Mayfair apartments. Before we move on, I want to talk a little bit about the Mayfair apartments. There's been an ongoing debate for years as to whether the police ever did question anybody living in the complex. Many people have cited gross negligence on the West Memphis Police Department side for not speaking to the people that lived in the apartment building right next to the crime scene. Other people have pointed out that the Mayfair apartments were indeed canvassed. And what we find in these notes is that they're right. The police did go through the Mayfair apartments. But when you really dig into the subject, really, both parties are right. While officers from the West Memphis PD did go to the apartments on several occasions, they in fact did not even come close to interviewing everyone that lived in the complex and most certainly didn't interview everyone that lived in the building right next to the crime scene. The Mayfair apartments are a huge complex. In total, there were 25 buildings at Mayfair. There were over 150 units. And while we do see throughout these notes that many of the units were visited, what we find is that police only ever talked to about a third of the units, less than 50 out of the more than 150. One lead that came out of the Mayfair apartments was Miss Laurel Sparler. She simply stated that there are Satan worshippers back there. On page 6 at the top of the page, we find a note that says, White male, 14, Perry Russell, subject stated he would like to kill someone to see what it's like. We have no indication of police files that the police ever followed up on Perry Russell. In apartment number 53, a Lynette Thomas told police that a white male with black and red long hair hangs out in that area, some type of cult. In apartment number 11, Carol Taylor tells police that there are two black males, 14 to 16, and one white male with long blonde hair, 16, was in the area. She never saw them before. They had on olive and green overalls, and these subjects had a gun. A few doors down in unit number 16, Verma Vowell tells police about one week ago someone was hanging around knocking on doors. It was a black male in his 40s. Then on page number 8, we find an interesting lead. It's 711 Wilson Drive. That's just behind the buyer's house. A Mr. Bill Heck said the following. Saw nothing, but said we needed to talk to Mrs. Clark. She works for Schneider Truck Lines, the evening shift. She said a driver saw a man with blood all over him on Wednesday night. The most interesting part about this lead is Schneider Truck Lines 
is where Michael Moore's father, Todd, worked. At 721 Wilson Drive, Jack Patterson tells police that on Wednesday afternoon, a black male in a blue van with Illinois tags kept bugging him for a job. Jack said he was acting crazy. Jack told him he couldn't hire him. The black male told Jack he was spending the night in his van to the rear of the mid-continent area. Thursday morning, the black male began bothering Jack again. The rest of this note is cut off. Now we move down to page 22, where a Mary Garnett tells police, in response to question number 8, which is to ask about anyone that lives in the area that appears to be strange or has been acting strange. Ms. Garnett tells police, maybe deaf guy, white male, 30s, looks like he escaped from a nut house. Haven't seen him in a year or so. Mary also points out, and this is the first of many reports like this, that on Wednesday she heard five or six gunshots. Sounded like a 22. Small. On page 24, we have a note from 819 Holiday Drive, a Mrs. Douglas. She says there's a heavy-set white boy that plays with smaller children. He seems very odd. Plays basketball on corner at 824, a lot. May live there, 15 to 16 years old. At 718 Holiday, a Patricia Klett says her daughter, Heather, knew Ryan Byers, the older brother of one of the victims, and she heard rocks being thrown that afternoon. Then at 717 Holiday, a Mr. Nowlin says, has a dopey-type neighbor in trouble all the time. Across street in juvenile facility somewhere. Been home in the last week, haven't seen in the last couple of days. This next note comes from 1100 Wecat Street. That's right up by the crime scene, and this is the second report we have of two black males in the area. Report comes from Charity Colon. She says, two black males, 19 or 20, never seen them before, wearing multicolored shorts and multicolored shirts. Saw them jump the fence while police were in the area. Right next door to her at 1102 WeCat, we have a simple note that reads, two white males, approximately 12. Then down at 1208 WeCat, Robert Perry tells police, last weekend, maybe Saturday, saw an elderly white male around 5 p.m., 54 to 62, walking west. On page 29, we find a note from 710 Wilson Drive. Again, that's right behind the buyer's home. This note comes from James Bunch. The note says, Last night observed a small maroon vehicle with several black males. When they passed him, they yelled, quote, There goes a white boy right there. If you're keeping track, this is the second report of a maroon vehicle in the area. And the third report of multiple black males. Further down this page, at 714 Wilson, report of a white male in mid-twenties on a bike yesterday, which was the 6th of May. That's the day the bodies were found. Approximately 6 foot tall, slim build, sandy blonde, medium length hair, blue jeans, and a plaid shirt. Saw him about three different times, once walking and twice on a bike. Then at 720 Wilson, a Mr. Bruce Williams says his daughter Kimberly has been interviewed by Inspector Gitchell. The daughter he's speaking of would be Kim Williams, who was hanging out with Michael's older sister, Dawn Moore, on the day the boys went missing. If you remember back from episode 501, after Dana Moore saw the boys heading north on 14th, she says that she sent Dawn to go find Michael to tell him to come home. 
Dawn stated that she was with Kim Williams. They both report seeing two black males and one white male coming out of the Robin Hood Hills area. Dawn stated that one of the black males offered her a, quote, shot. Next, we move on to an account by Sheila Stewart at 1009 Roy Pugh Drive. She says that she used to live at 1100 Weecat, and over a period of about two years off and on, observed a white male approximately 40 years old, 6 foot 2, 140 to 150 pounds, dirty blonde shoulder-length hair. No further notes on this. Then we move on to 1401 Goodwin. The note says, David Beasley, check out white male, late teens, early 20s, shoulder-length, reddish hair. Now, if you're following along with the notes right now, you'll notice that this particular note, found on page 30, is circled with a star next to it. The implication here that many people have assumed who have actually seen this document is that the note is referring to one of the suspects who was later arrested in this case. Late teens, early 20s, shoulder-length, red hair. But in fact, that description was not of another suspect. It was a description of David Beasley himself. This is a report by Officer Diane Hester. She says, May 7th afternoon. Upon conducting house-to-house interviews, I knocked on the door of 1401 Goodwin. The door was opened by a white male. Late teens, early to mid-twenties, about 5'6 to 5'7, slim build, shoulder-length, reddish-brown hair, wearing jeans and no shirt. I told him who I was and that we were just checking the neighborhood to see if anyone saw anyone or anything unusual before or since the homicides. As soon as he opened the door and saw that I was a police officer, he immediately put his right arm behind the door as if to purposely keep me from seeing it. I asked him his name for my records, and he seemed very nervous and wanted to know why I wanted his name and explained again it was for my records only, and asked again. Again, he asked why and would not tell me. I asked about three or four more times before a black male with long, corn-rolled hair appeared from behind the white male and said, David Beasley, his name is David Beasley, in a very agitated voice. The white male stated that he had just moved here a few days prior from Los Angeles, California. I observed what appeared to be about a four-inch fresh scratch on the white male's chest. I then spoke with a neighbor of theirs, Deborah Odinger. Now, that's a name we've all heard before, and asked if she knew anything about these guys. She stated that they had just moved in on Sunday the 2nd of May and seemed to be very strange. Stated that they always seemed to leave together with the white male always opening the door for the black male. Further states that the black male is almost always dressed in black and wore a black robe with some sort of white cross or other sign on it. I observed the white male wearing a silver chain with a star or star circle cross on it. After this interaction, Detective Brian Ridge followed up. This is from the 10th of May, the following Monday. The note says, Sir Michael gives sermons. Faith Revival Reverend, a guest of church pastor. The black male's nephew has been stationed at Camp Pendleton, visited over six months ago. There's a drawing of a star with a cross in the center. Jewish Star of David, spiritual representation of star and cross of crucifixion. Second necklace, African drum. No scratches, sunburned on left arm from driving. Groceries from Big Star, jewelry for Sir Michael were gifts on different occasions. Scorpio sign necklace, bought by, quote, King David for Sir Michael. Also ring, Pentecostal Church of Faith in Good. Bishop Anne May Siviester, black female. God is the judge. The notes continue on, 1401 Goodwin Utilities, 
Lysia Harris. Liz at 1401 Goodwin. It says again, King David Samuel Beasley, then Sir Michael Williams, black male. The notes end with, two are very weird. Black male wears robes with hoods, etc. Says he is a preacher. The two were later cleared by Detective Mike Allen. On June 23rd, Allen writes this in his notes. Verified with Reverend Joe Willie Holder, stated that on May 2nd, that Sir Michael William and King David Samuel Beasley were at the church from May 2nd through an eight-day period with a revival. The revival started every night at 8.30 p.m. and ended at 10.30 or 11 p.m. Both Williams and Beasley were there every night for service. They were giving revival on the evening of May 5th, 1993. Signed, Detective Mike Allen. we continue on with the West Memphis Police Department's door-to-door canvassing, we now move on to 1202 Proctor Street. Proctor is a short street that dead ends into Weecat, just about 75 yards from the pipe bridge going into the crime scene. The resident at 1204 Proctor says that between 10 p.m. and 11 p.m., they heard five gunshots. Now, this is the third instance we have of someone reporting of hearing gunshots that night. The number five seems to be consistent across all of the statements. One lead that I've been very interested in was the egged house that Regina Meek was dispatched to on the night of May 5th. Remember, she was at Bojangles when a call came in at 9 p.m. for a complaint of a house being egged at 1004 Roy Pugh Drive. This house runs right off of Proctor, and is about 100 yards or so from the pipe bridge. I've been wondering if this incident could have anything to do with the murders of Christopher, Stevie, and Michael. Then I started reading the door-to-door notes, and on the 15th of May, Officer Shane Griffin writes in his notes that 1004 Pew Drive is a vacant house. More on this later. The next entry we have is from 1001 Roy Pew Drive, where the resident there says they saw a black male in the area a day or two before the murders. The person is not usually in the area. They're six foot one, slim, and about 150 pounds. Possibly a gray uniform, short hair, medium brown. Next, we move on to 1308 Goodwin Drive. Again, that's up there on the north end of the neighborhood. We have a Miss Dolores Smith. She states that she saw a maroon, newer model vehicle parked at the dead end late Wednesday night. Vehicle had a large antenna on the back, thinks it had Tennessee tags. When she got up Thursday morning to take her daughter to school at 7.15 a.m., it was there. Then when she got back at 7.45 a.m., the vehicle was gone. She never saw anyone get in or out of the vehicle. Next, a couple doors down at 1303 Goodwin, Michael Roberts says that he saw a white male, 30s, dark brown hair, who walks the area a lot. He has seen him once since the homicides. Our next lead comes from 1206 Goodwin, says Doyle and Dana Jones. They say that when they first moved into the house, there used to be a young man who was a white male, approximately mid-20s, straight, shaggy, dark hair, and he carried a long staff and had a slim build. He was very strange and have not seen him in the last year. 
They know he was familiar with the area and would recognize him if they saw him. Next, we move on to 1302 Goodwin. Here we have a statement that the man across the street works for the utility company. He has a small black car with Tennessee tags, and he was washing it at about 11 p.m. on the night of the murders. The vehicle was very muddy. Next, we move on to 1105 Little Elton Drive, and that's another one of those little roads that connects West Macaulay to Proctor, right up near the crime scene. Michael Root stated the following. He said that he thought he had saw the kids about 6 p.m. Wednesday night with a white male somewhere between where he worked at pool trucking and 1105 Little Elton. This is the first lead where someone has said that they saw the boys with someone else. Unfortunately, I can't find any more information where this lead was ever followed up on, and I haven't been able to find any information as to the location of pool trucking. Next, we stay in the same area at 1004 Ferguson, where in the margins of this note we find, quote, Doyle's friend Jeff Holliday lives on Holiday, said he was chased by a male in a white van Wednesday or Thursday, May 5th or 6th. This is not the last entry where we're going to hear about a mysterious white van. There's another note here that says, Saw white male, 6'1", medium build, late 20s, early 30s, jeans, blue shirt, blue vest, 5'6 to 5'8", short, curly, sandy brown hair, heavy set. Another note says there was a white male that the kids call, quote, crazy man and think is mental. Looks like he's 18 to 20 years old and lives on Roy Pugh Drive. He has a sister named Susan. We have another report of a suspicious person at 1008 Ferguson. This one just says there's a white male named Nigel. Stands around by himself and stays to himself. Possibly lives in Mayfair. Nothing really there. Then we have in the same address another note that says, One week ago saw a white male with white beard and mustache, salt and pepper hair, late 40s to 50s, wearing ragged high waters, carrying a walking cane. But then right after it, it says, nobody's strange. On page 74 of the document, we have a couple of interesting notes here. This statement is made by Danny Laird and Darlene Laird. Their answer to question number eight, which was, is there anyone that lives in the area that appears to be strange or has been acting strange? Their response was John Mark Byers. Then at the bottom of this page, we have another note that says Rodney Rhine, R-H-Y-N-E, told her about his sister and brother-in-law was trying to adopt the buyer's boy before this happened. In parentheses, she will try to get back with more information. I tried to find any more information on someone trying to adopt Chris Byers, and so far I've completely struck out. Just this one note. Now we move back up to Wecat Street, And at 1100 Wecat, Virginia Collin stated the following when asked if there was anyone that's normally seen in the area that hasn't been seen since. She says, a 40-year-old white male, 5'9", 190 pounds, brown, gray beard, 12 inches long, shaggy, unkempt, old bicycle, blue with basket on front, last seen going towards Robin Hood a month ago, believed to live there. On page 86 of the document, we have a note that simply says, Younger white male with brownish curly hair, 5'10", 140 to 150 pounds. Above it, it says David Plunkett, approximately 28 to 29 years old. And a white female, heavyset, approximately 5'7", 350 to 360 pounds. The next line says, custody battle with wife over young son. 
Courts in Missouri and Tennessee declared him dangerous. He lives in Forest City. The note goes on to say he's supposed to be carrying a shotgun, has threatened to shoot people or bashing their heads with the butt, known to hit people when they weren't looking, possibly has outstanding warrants in Tennessee and Missouri. Next, we move down to Barton Street, that's right across the street from Weaver Elementary School, and also right across the street from Michael Moore's house, and we find another appearance of the mysterious white van. At 1113 East Barton, the note says, Jason Hinkle, a white male about 12 years old, said a couple of months ago, before the time changed, a white van, Astro, with a red stripe on the side, followed him four or five times, once on the blacktop that goes from the school past the ball field. Windows are all tinted, and the black windows all have curtains. Therefore, he has no description of any occupants. There are a couple of other black males that live on the corner that have been with him when this van has came by. They are Herman and Bobby Posey, and a boy named Donnell, that live on Johnson in a blue house. You'll remember the name Bobby Posey as he was the one that told police that Christopher Byers had stopped by his house that afternoon and told him that he was running away. Next, we have a note with no address attached to it. It says, Washington State, three youths in their 20s, all white, PCP addicts, live in small white house across from park with few trees. The one white house across from park bordered by all of the other houses. This is a construction site near the park where they're building condos using a crane. People are crazy. Get them before they do it again. Also into mutilations, everything evil. Don't get much sun. Next, we're back at the Mayfair Apartments where Nikki Taylor says that a tall black male with short gray hair chased her on foot in front of Fidelity. The next, we have another statement from a Mary Ball, who says that a black male named Eric aggravates small kids in the area. In 1805 Goodwin, the respondee reports that a white male, 20 to 25, 5 foot 10, 160 pounds with black hair, tries to get a ride from her every morning. Next, we move on to 805 North 14th Street. This is just north of the Moore's house. Statement reads that at 9 p.m. Wednesday night, she was at the coastal station in Marion. Now, for the record, Marion butts up to West Memphis just on the other side of the interstate. So we're talking about a mile away. She says that she saw two transient male whites who were in the area and looked as if they had just cleaned up. They were late 20s and clean cut. Next, we have a note from 1113 East Barton. She's a star there, and it says C. Anderson folder. As we move down to the next page, it's the same address, and it says C. Page 1. And finally, on page 100, we have our tip. Mrs. Becky Hinkle from 1113 East Barton states that she feels that a Chris Luttrell or Murray Ferris may be involved because they kill small animals and have a six-point star. This was a lead that the West Memphis police followed up on. Both Chris Luttrell and Murray Ferris were brought into the West Memphis Police Department for questioning, and both of them agreed to take polygraph tests. Here's a result of Murray Ferris's polygraph test. The report reads as follows. In the pretest interview, the subject said he has never been in the Robin Hood Hills and denies any involvement in the death of the three young boys. A nine-question polygraph test was formulated and the three polygraph charts were conducted. The following relevant questions were asked. 
Were you in Robin Hood Hills last Wednesday or Wednesday night? Do you have any information about these murders that you're not telling me? Do you know who killed those three boys? Are you involved in any way in the deaths of those three boys? Murray Ferris answered no to all four questions. And the report goes on to say, It is the opinion of this polygraph examiner that this subject recorded no significant responses which would be indicative of deception when he answered the above listed relevant questions in the manner noted. Conclusion, no deception indicated. Next, we move on to Christopher Luttrell's polygraph. His report reads as follows. In the pretest interview, the subject said that he has been in Robin Hood Hills in the past, but has not been there in the past six months. He said that he did not know about the murders until Thursday afternoon, and he denied any involvement in the deaths of the three victims. Luttrell was asked the same four relevant questions as Murray, and the report reads, It is the opinion of this polygraph examiner that this subject recorded no significant responses, which would be indicative of deception when he answered the above relevant questions in the manner noted. Conclusion, no deception indicated. After the polygraphs were conducted, Detective Brian Ridge wrote up the following report. On May 10, 1993, Christopher Luttrell came to the West Memphis Police Department to be interviewed about his knowledge of the above noted incidents. Chris stated that he was in church the night the boys came up missing and that he has no information about their death. Information was developed that confirmed that Chris was in a church function on the evening of 5-5 and that after the church function, he was at his residence in the company of his mother and father. Christopher is not considered to be a suspect unless evidence can be developed that would link him to the crime scene of the victims. A few days after Luttrell and Ferris were cleared by Ridge, another tip came in about Murray. The tip reads, Shelley Warner wanted us to check out Murray Ferris. A few years ago, Ferris approached Shelley's son and stated he was a sex killer and displayed a knife. The school talked to him and took the knife Since then, the rumor is Ferris is into cults and loves guns and knives. Also, Ferris had a strong friendship with a Jeffrey Smith who was six years younger than he is. Smith's father used to be an officer on this department, Jimmy. Detective Bill Durham wrote a follow-up report after this tip came in. It says, this subject was interviewed on May 11th. The subject denied any involvement in the crime. This subject was cleared by polygraph. And that's the end of the story. Although it's not the last we hear from Murray Ferris. He actually passed on a tip to detectives about another suspect. The note given to detectives by Murray reads as follows. Around 37 years old, white, blonde hair, wears reading glasses, around 5 foot 9, 240 to 260 pounds, heavy set, Beer belly going bald. He has an off-white van or cream van and lives outside West Memphis around Earl, Arkansas. He leads an evil cult. There's that white van again. As we move on, at 1613 Goodwin, Helen Bryan says that last week she saw two teens with a knife. And then we move back again to Roy Pugh Drive. Now recall just a bit ago when Officer Shane Griffin canvassed the house that was egged on the night of the murders. He listed on his door-to-door notes that the house was vacant. This was a clear variation from his notes on other unoccupied houses where he would write, no answer or no one home. But 1004 Roy Pugh Drive, he listed as, quote, vacant. Yet here on page 103, we have another officer canvassing the area on a different day 
and he makes the following note regarding 1004 Roy Pugh Drive. Quote, James Lance had an egg thrown at his home Wednesday at 9 p.m. Advised he knew the kids, and they were always roaming the area, and were usually into mischief. This is all the information that we have regarding the egged house. Mr. Lance says that he knew the kids who did it, but the officer didn't bother to record the names of those boys. I personally will be filing an open records request for the May 5th police report this week. This information could lead nowhere, or it could be critically important. We have a group of kids running around egging houses just 100 yards away from the crime scene on the night the boys were murdered. Maybe they know something. Until we have more information, I'm going to move on from the Eggers. However, this is something important enough to keep in the back of our minds. But we'll put a pin in it for now. But the door-to-door notes do tell us a lot about the investigation. On the surface, it appears that the West Memphis PD put a lot of time and effort into finding information about who killed Stevie, Chris, and Michael. But what Shane Griffin's mistake tells us is that we cannot rely completely on the validity of these door-to-door interviews. Griffin made a huge error here. As I said, it could lead to something, and maybe nothing, but marking that house down as vacant when it was clearly occupied is a big problem. This is just one house out of 140 pages of notes, and it's the only house where we know for a fact that he got it wrong. How many more of these notes are inaccurate? Sadly, we may never know. Next, we have a note from a Wanda Parlett. She wasn't in the area at the time of the murders. She was actually in court. Her note says, Was at court with Chris's father. He left at 5 p.m. and returned about 6-ish, saying he was pissed off at Chris about breaking out a window and taking food. This doesn't give us a lot of information as far as leads in the case, but it does go a long way to confirming John Mark Byer's statement that he left court, picked his wife Melissa up, went home, found Chris, he broke the window, punished Chris, and left again and went back to court to pick up Ryan. This statement seems to confirm that. Then we move on to 1005 Goodwin Circle, where Motisha Mathis tells the officer that a Mrs. Franklin says she knows who did it. Unfortunately, through my searching through all these documents, I've never found any interview with anyone by the name of Mrs. Franklin. At 1105 Ferguson, we find a note from Nancy Brown who said there was a cult over there They have white robes and have rituals over there. Then, at 1596 Goodwin, Marion Ernest tells police that she saw two white males with backpacks hitchhiking crossing the old bridge at 9.30 a.m. on the 6th. She says that they were going eastbound. Then, at 1702 Goodwin, we have another report that says that they heard a gang meets in Robin Hood Woods. At the bottom of that report, it's actually written upside down, but what the note says is saw two black males running from field area. Two seen only between 9.30, then it says T-I-C. So here we again have two black male suspects running from a field area on the night of the murder right near Robin Hood Woods. Next, at 802 Macaulay Street, a Roy Taylor says his wife heard screams and saw, quote, blacks in two brown cars. Next, down at 712 Macaulay, the note says Bastel, white van statement from kids. Next, the officers go back to the Mayfair apartments again, and the office manager states that she heard shots fired that night. 
Then a Jamie Johnson in apartment number 89 says, He saw three boys that evening and heard gunshots late that night. He's interviewed by a different officer on the next page and gives the same account. Next, we have a note from Goodwin's Circle. The note reads, White male, older 50s, uniform gray, muddy, dirty, parks and school are in front of 1102 Goodwin. Hasn't been around since the boys were discovered. Tool Bay in back. Next, we have two men ran from the woods Wednesday night. Little girl told this, and one of her family members saw the two men. We have another note that says, two white men, two black men walking in street, muddy past Saturday. And next we have a note about somebody named Terry Worth from 700 East Macaulay. The note says, 14 to 15, goes to wonder, somewhat mental, stays in trouble, been in Mid-South, and I can't read the next word. Terry was sexually abused as a child. Teacher, quote, Betty Pierce, Terry's teacher, knows info. Rides a bicycle a lot. Mrs. Aldridge saw Terry Wednesday at approximately 4.30 p.m., 14th and Weaver School area. We have another note from 900 Barton that's part of the Mayfair apartment complex. This one says black male, late 30s, full beard and mustache, short, medium complexion, dreadlocks, blue jean overalls, black hat. Then it says rides bike, acts peculiar, south side of bio, off of West Macaulay. Then another Mayfair resident in apartment 5, Diana Knight, says she heard gunshots that night a little before 11 p.m. She also says a black male named Thomas was around the bayou picking up cans. Then we move on to apartment 3. Mr. Mark Welch, age 13, says he heard gunshots 4 or 5 around 10.30 p.m. Then we have another note that says, Dark car, driving slow, tan roof, rusted wheels, first time two weeks ago, black male, last Saturday or Sunday. Then here we have another note at 914 East Barton Street that says, Wednesday, 9.30 p.m., heard kids screaming. Then we have another note beside that that says, White van yesterday, one street, possible white male. Then on page 149, we have a note that says, Friday or Saturday morning, they observed a white male with red hair walk down the street and go into the area where the murders happened. Then seen him come out, it was in the morning. A white male, red hair, six foot one, shoulder length, in his 20s. Hasn't seen him before. They thought he might have been a relative. Now as my own personal side note here, this sounds strikingly similar to King David that we discussed earlier. And that's it. And I know that this hasn't been the most exciting episode to listen to. It's a whole lot of little details and little notes. But the reason that I wanted to go through them point by point is, number one, to give you the full picture of what went on during this door-to-door canvassing. And secondly, to note that there was a lot of leads, a lot. Some of them were substantial. Many of them weren't. But by going through all 140 pages, what we've learned is that there are three consistent themes throughout this entire document. Number one, there were several people who said they saw two black males in the area off of Goodwin by Robin Hood Woods that night. Had one report that says they saw the two black males jumping over a fence when the police were there. We have someone else who saw them running through the field. And then we have Kim Williams and Dana Moore, who said that they came out of the woods and offered them a, quote, shot. The second consistency throughout all of these notes is the white van. 
Several times throughout these notes, different people are reporting a suspicious white van following children or chasing children. And then lastly, the gunshots. The gunshots intrigue me. I can't begin to tell you what they mean. We did have the report by Ryan Clark that while he was out looking for the boys, he heard a gunshot, something that John Mark Byers and Officer Moore chalked up to a car backfire. But there were six or seven different reports from people around the Mayfair Apartments area, which is right near the crime scene, who all reported around 10.30 or 11, hearing consistently four or five gunshots. So those are the consistencies throughout the entire 140-page, very boring set of notes with the door-to-door canvassing. And we can move on to investigate more leads from here. But before we do that, next week, we're going to go back through these notes, but in a different way. We're going to break down every single sighting of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher on the evening of May 5th, 1993. And once we start to break down and analyze each individual sighting, we start to get a very different picture of where the boys were on that afternoon and who they were with. One of the sightings that we're going to be discussing next week was a sighting that was mentioned in episode 501. And that was the statement of Miss Jamie Clark Ballard, who lived at 1609 South Macaulay, a few doors down from the Hobbs. Remember, she came forward 14 years later and said that she saw Stevie, Michael, and Christopher right out from between her house and the neighbors. She told Christopher he needs to go home. He smarted off and said he didn't have to. And she says that she saw Terry Hobbs yell at the boys to get back down to his house. Now, her statement has been called into question for several years. People want to know why she didn't come forward earlier. And why did the police never interview her? And if she had information, why didn't she say something? What we've learned by going through these door-to-door notes is that there is no question, no doubt whatsoever, that the West Memphis Police Department never went down to Stevie's neighborhood to go door-to-door. And according to Jamie Clark Ballard, She didn't come forward with the information because she didn't know it was significant. But while going through these door-to-door notes, we found something that may add some credibility to Jamie Clark Ballard's statement. If you go on our website and look through the door-to-door notes, on page 133 of the 140-page document, we'll also have this page up in a better scanned version so you can see the whole thing, there's a star next to the address 807 North 14th, Etta Keene. After it, it says call. And then in the margin, just above and to the left, we see a note written vertically. The note says, Jamie Clark, South Macaulay. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All Music of the Show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. I want to thank Katie Ross, who is designing and continuing to manage our brand new website. I want to thank our transcription team, Anna Dindorf, Sarah Mueller, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And also a big thank you to Shane Yoder for designing our Season 5 logo. If you have a tip, a thought, theory, or question, you can send those into us through our email address, theories at truthandjusticepod.com, through our Facebook page, the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page, 
You can call in our tip line at 269-224-2833 at any time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and leave a voicemail. Or you can follow along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.